Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Dear Louise series, where I have the joy of conversing with extraordinary individuals living with spinal cord injury, who both embrace and defy their physical limitations as entrepreneurs, trailblazers, tastemakers, and innovators. Join us as we explore what is possible in spinal cord injury. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Hello, everyone. I'm Louise Fipsempt, your host of Blink of an Eye podcast and the founder of Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. We all know how life can change in the blink of an eye. Please reach out to me at louise at blinkofaneye.org about your experiences with trauma and trauma healing. In the heart of South Minneapolis, there resides a gifted young man whose artistry seems to know no bounds. Meet Gabriel Roderick, a multidisciplinary artist whose creative journey is a testament to the boundless power of the human spirit. Gabriel's adult life has been shaped by a spinal cord injury, Asia AC4, a defining chapter in his story that breathes life into his new form of artistic expression. As a songwriter, Gabe's music is a mesmerizing amalgamation, weaving together raw, stripped-down folk with larger-than-life grooves. His melodies resonate with the depth of his experiences, touching the hearts of those who listen. But Gabriel's creative spirit doesn't stop there. At the core of his artistry lies the principle of healing through shadow work, an exploration that delves into the intricacies and darkness of the human experience. His work unapologetically embraces themes of being crippled, sexuality for a paralyzed man, and the universal themes of how we are all crippled, igniting conversations that challenge and inspire. Stay tuned. Gabriel Roderick, also known as Freak, faced a life-altering spinal cord injury accident in 2008 leaving him with a C5 complete vertebra injury, unable to walk or play piano as he had for years. Despite this, Gabriel put his creativity into music production, 
creating a genre he calls dirt folk, inspired by Kendrick Lamar and others. Freak also initiated a cripple's dance, a project uniting individuals with spinal cord injuries and able-bodied artists in live music and dance performances. His message? Darkness isn't as scary as we think. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks for having me, Louise. Yeah, so pleased. And may I call you Gabe? Yeah, that feels good. (laughs) You know, I've been really looking into your works, um, really admiring them and see that you are a deep thinker, a lyricist, an expressionist, a musician. And I'm wondering as we open with our conversation, if you might give us a sense of Gabe Roderick, the human. I'm actually doing a lot of work on that lately and figuring out, I mean, I think a lot of our lives are spent figuring out who we are. But I think specifically over the last six months, I've been doing a lot of digging into who I am, where I've been, where I'm going. My life is oriented towards creating. It's oriented towards sort of, yeah, the adventure of creating and digging and looking and discovering I think it's always been that way, you know, even prior to my injury, but I think my having my injury and living with a spinal cord injury and disability has made that, that job very, a lot more potent, I'd say, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Mm -hmm. a lot, it's a lot more complicated. It's a lot more nuanced. There's a lot more darkness (laughs) Mm -hmm. to scrounge around in. And yeah, I... My focus is music, dance. Been experimenting a little more with theater. I do some visual art, a lot of poetry. I'm kind of all over the map when it comes to creating. So, well, a real creative spirit, oftentimes can be, yeah. especially when it's so multi-dimensional and there's this adventurous spirit that is attached to it, like you have. I'm just thinking, gosh, you know, with the digging and creating and sense of adventure, you might just add. And you're also like an archaeologist, <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know, into the yeah. into your own human existence. Yeah, you know, you just mentioned your spinal cord injury with the nuances and the complexities and darkness. You know, if you're willing, would you be able to describe that pivotal moment when you had your diving accident in Costa Rica mm. that may have changed your life? Uh, Yeah, I was 15 years old. I had just finished my sophomore year and, yeah, decided to go on this trip, and I was really excited. I had some ties to Costa Rica, so I was excited to go there specifically. Mm. But, yeah, it was the first day of being at Manuel Antonio, and I was body surfing into the shore with my friend Greg We would body surf into the shore and then we'd run back out and dive in. And I remember the last time we were like on the beach together, I was like, I'm going to do one more. And he was like, I'm going to go back to the group. So I, I ran back out to dive in and I don't know how it happened, but I just dove too shallow and I was right on the beach 
And I don't know how many times I've done that here in in the lakes in Minnesota where you just run into the water and you make sure and dive pretty straight and mm-hmm. so you don't mm-hmm. hit the bottom. But this time I just like somehow completely miscalculated and yeah, dove too shallow, hyperextended my neck, broke C5 and found myself, I was conscious the whole time. I woke up underwater and face down and honestly I had a point where I kind of resigned myself to floating out to sea and drowning because everybody was there were like 50, 50 yards away. And I think there was a point where I was just like, well, I guess this is it. I always remember this like weird sense of calm that came over me in that moment of like realizing that I was gonna like drown possibly. And I wonder about that feeling a lot because it was such a, there was almost like a peacefulness that I had with me. And then my friends who I was there with realized I was not messing around and I was injured and they came and grabbed me and pulled me out. And, you know, I was very relieved. Can we pause and go back? Yeah. Very relieved. I really want to explore, if we could, that moment of calm mm. and almost peacefulness that this was it. Yeah. That you were die drowning. Yeah. It was the ocean, I think. In a lot of ways, it was the magnitude and the power of the ocean. And I'll never forget, like, opening my eyes and just seeing blue and just being engulfed by that color, the water, like there was, it felt so expansive and so like, almost like cosmic. It's such a massive part of the world that we live in and such a vital, part of why we're even alive you know and yeah yeah water so i think like there was this moment of like it was a moment of surrender i think you know like i don't have any i don't have any Mm -hmm. control over this moment and i let myself surrender to it i think about that a lot and i think I play that out a lot in my own life that like there is when you have this injury, when you live with this disability, you have to surrender to it in a lot of ways, you know, like you have Mm -hmm. to accept your circumstances because there is no, there's not a cure right now. There are, you know, there are maybe cures coming and there are things we can do in the future, but right now it's like, okay, this is where you're at. This is what you got. And you surrender to it and you move through it, you know? So yeah, I think that's kind of what that all makes me think of, I guess. Making me think and listening deeply to you, just really not imagining, but feeling into that sense of something so vast and so much larger and more powerful than you and then living 
with spinal cord injury that is also just it unto itself is so much larger and bigger than just one able-bodied person. Right. And the surrender that um, somehow you found in the water that day. Yeah. It can take many people a lifetime of ever to find that surrender. Yeah. You know, especially when we do chase cures and and stay so optimistic, you know, optimistic for what, you know, to to walk again, to run again. And that's like, but here I am today. (laughs) Right. Yeah, here we are, you know, one disabled, as you say, and one abled person and wanted to be here now and to be so young, 15. Yeah. To experience that, Gabe, that's uh, worth noting. Yeah. And all that's happening and you've got your buddies jumping in to come get you. Yes. They pulled me out and pretty quickly an ambulance came. And I think from that point on, it's all like it's a montage of little snippets of images and sounds and driving in the ambulance in the back of the ambulance showing up at a hospital an hour or two away and then going to San Jose, the hospital there and getting surgery there and reconstructing the vertebrae. And I stayed there for about a week and a half. It took my parents two or three days to show up. And I had, like I said, I had connections to Costa Rica. So my friend's family came and stayed with me and visited throughout the week and a half that I was there, even when my parents came. But Your parents, I can't even imagine also for them to be so separated yeah. from you and trying to get their way to you in a place yeah. that was, sounds like relatively remote. Yep. Yeah. So these snippets, you know, it's all about sort of what's happening around you as someone experiencing what the medical profession says, you know, is one of the most complicated injuries um, Mm. ever, you know, on the books kind of thing. Do you remember what it was like for you then? And you may not because sometimes the way the brain tries to protect us is to take away some of those acute memories. I would definitely say I was pretty checked out. These really small snippets of like, Remembering the fluorescent lights and the sort of staleness of the hospitals and I'm laying down the whole time and the first drive in the ambulance to the first hospital, you know, I was laying on a wood board. So I remember my head was like, my head was on wood in a ambulance driving on Costa Rica roads and, you know, I think I, I probably had a lump by the time we got back to the main yeah, hospital. In other words, they're, they're not paved and they're I mean, some, a lot of them are, but and, yeah, there's, mm-hmm. you know, they're not super nice streets. And so there's a rough ride and you're on this, uh, yeah, just a sensation, ride. you know, yeah. being on that wooden board. Mm-hmm. I think those are the things I remember a lot more, just like the sensations, the sounds, the colors, the things that I could feel. And I think even a lot of my memories are as if I'm 
watching it all happen, you know, like I'm pulled out of my body and watching it all take place. Another really normal, common trauma response. Yeah. Yeah. You can see yourself like your own witness. Right. Yeah. I remember the first week and a half of being in the hospital, I maybe even longer. I was, you know, I came from the, the beach and I just had sand everywhere. And it was still coming out, you know, like weeks later from my head. And, you know, it was just like hair and hair on your body everywhere. Yeah. You know, you kind of laugh a little bit, but just, you know, imagine I'm imagining you can't get that sand out of your ears, you know, and just none of us usually like the sensation of sand in our ears. I remember my nose was itching all the time. And I would literally just have people come up and scratch it for me because, you know, I, at that point I couldn't really move my arms too much. So, yeah, I remember that for sure, like being really frustrated about how I can't itch my nose. Yeah, such basic fundamental things as itching your nose. Right. Yeah. And the kindness of someone then itching it for you in a way of, of course they would, but there's, it just strikes me that there's an intimacy in those kinds of gestures. Absolutely. I can't remember who told me at first, but somebody said that whenever your nose itches, it means somebody's thinking of you. Yeah, I grew up with that. I always really felt, that always made it all feel better because it was like, you know, my nose is itching Mm. all the time. (laughs) And it was just like, oh. You see, that's not an old wives' tale. That's a truism. All those people thinking of you, and you know they were. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny how how we're shaped by messages and things that those around us when we were children have told us and how they can so come to the fore when we need those resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we'll thank your mom or your dad or your grandma or whoever it was who, who yeah. told that to you or a teacher <laughs> or friend, yeah. whoever it was, an auntie, yeah. whoever it was. All these tiny little pieces of the injury itself. I always marvel. No injury is the same. Your injury is fairly high injury, C5, mm-hmm. and you're complete. You know, I'm just curious about many things in your journey because you're so willing in your lyrics to write about mm. things in such a exposed, if you will, way. And is it okay that we continue along these lines? Yeah, please. What was it like with your friends? Or mm. were you even aware since they were your family, if you will, for the first yeah. number of days? That was probably one of the harder parts about the first few years of post-injury. I mean, I had already been, you know, I was my second year of high school, and I I grew up with a really tight-knit, close friend group. Like, we all went to, we grew up in the same church, and we all lived really close, too. So it was this really tight-knit, kind of almost like an urban commune. You know, our parents were friends. We were friends. We'd spend mm-hmm. each other, spend time at each other's houses and... You know, our families share resources and childcare, and like your own little pod. Yeah, yep. I remember when I got into high school; it's I could feel that starting to break apart. 
we were still close and we'd still hang out. But yeah, then my injury came and I think it really blew that wide open. And I think, you know, disasters and traumatic experiences kind of, it shows what people can handle, you know? And I think mm. at that time, a lot of those friends couldn't, they didn't know how to react. They didn't know how to relate. They didn't know what to do. And I think I spent a lot of time feeling angry and sort of betrayed by them. But years later, kind of realized like they weren't equipped to handle that. You know, like, no, there's really not a lot of people in the world that are equipped to handle it. I've forgiven and given a lot of grace to that crowd mm. since then. High school was really difficult. I was not really there. I probably spent two more semesters at high school in part because me and my dad spent so much time traveling and going to San Diego and Kansas City and we went to New Delhi for stem cell treatments. And so the first two years of my injury, I was gone maybe almost half the time and gone even more, like pretty checked out and emotionally unavailable and just trying to acclimate. I remember it as a very lonely period of my life, the first mm -hmm. three years probably. And then kind of ended up stopped traveling and I decided to go to the community, the local community college. I ended up going with two of my friends from elementary, middle school, and, and high school, different from the sort of church crowd that I grew up with. We went to school together for about a semester or maybe two semesters. We didn't really have classes together, but we would meet up. And pretty soon we were like, hey, should we move in together? Should we? <laughs> you know, we were 19 and we were like, I think it might be time. And so we moved out, you know, I was, this was what, three years after my injury? Three, four years post-injury. It's kind of a bold move for a yeah. one-eyed fat man, John Wayne would say. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a bold move, but I think I needed it. And I needed to move on and live. And, you know, I don't know how many people with spinal cord injuries I've run into that are still living with their parents and... So not, you know, not that's a bad thing, but it like it is a sign of a lot of other things, at least in this culture. You know, I think there's a moment where you need to choose to live and go out and adventure in the world and take risks. And I mean, I remember my parents were I don't think they showed it as much, but the way they talk about it, they were terrified, like <laughs> they were not yeah. ready for that. But they supported me and they they were like, okay, we're going to do this. It might be that love manifested as terror, parental terror yeah. of their son, their baby, somehow. And we all know, my gosh, I mean, the list is long. Yeah. <laughs> it could happen in the nighttime, you know, so, but a real pivotal moment. Yeah, I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to move in with my friends at 19. Yeah. Um, it worked great. And we lived together for three or four years and then... We all kind of decided to go separate ways as far as our living situations, but 
I'm still really good friends with them. Their names are Victor and Ben. Shout um, out to Victor and Ben. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We, we still we get together once a month and we play board games and so we're still in each other's lives and I'm so mm-hmm. so so grateful for them and I think they've supported me in ways that you know I wasn't really expecting to be supported by friends and you know through the first post three years you know losing a lot of friendships and kind of realizing and going kind of going back to these friendships with Victor and Ben I was like oh these are these are my people you know these are your people yeah Um, your spinal cord injury and the catastrophic nature of it and it's so freaky Mm-hmm. For everyone, and it does tend, and trauma itself, you know, creates separation. And whether, you know, the goal to reestablish connection, but it doesn't necessarily happen with a lot of people mm-hmm. in our lives before the trauma for one reason or another. You know, we don't know, yep. but we'll give compassion, can touch on a nerve or not having the resiliency, or just maybe the relationship wasn't as strong as one thought just sort of passing through we all pass through many friendships and so forth over the course of a lifetime yeah I think those friendships that I grew up with that's kind of how I see them now is like that's what I needed through the first you know 13 14 years of my life and quickly realized like yeah we're this isn't really working anymore right like and that's okay that you can move on and find new people. And, you know, I still see those friends a lot, the friends that I grew up with, and have come to really feel grateful. And then also whenever I see them, there's this, like, there's this deep, like, understanding of, like, we grew up together. We spent our formative years together and to run into that person in the city when you're out is just like it hits really deep sometimes you know and it makes you feel like oh yeah I'm still here we're still here we're still going and I feel really grateful for all of that grateful yeah and not that it had to be your spinal cord injury to have you experience that sense of gratefulness and gratitude. But I know in in our case, with Archer's spinal cord injury, three different text chains for me, one with my grade school friend, and I'm decades older than you are, (laughs) many. And then I have a text chain with my, you know, besties from college. And then with my own siblings, you know, these three different groups. And yeah, when we connect and then when we see each other, mm. it you don't have to. There's just such love and acceptance. And you might not even know what people are doing or how they've changed in their lives career-wise or house-wise. Whatever. You just know them, yeah. like the essence yeah. of each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's really beautiful that you um, have experienced that too. You're You're an old soul, Gabe. Thank you. I like to think so. (laughs) I think I'm going to peak when I'm 60. Yeah, I don't think so. Old (laughs) souls don't peak. (laughs) Ah, ah, I like it. (laughs) Yeah. 
You know, there's something else about these the young, when you were young with this injury and your, and your younger friends that I'm kind of curious about, especially your roommates, Ben and Victor. Is there something to say for you about having friends whom you then lived with who knew you before you were spinal cord injured? Or did that, you think, not matter so much? Yeah, honestly, I not don't... just the length of time, but actually yeah. knowing you before injury. Honestly, it's not something I think about too much. It makes me wonder if that's a little more on their mind, because they're the ones who, you know, who were watching me. I have my experience of myself before my injury, but that's really mainly my relationship to my body and it's funny you ask because I just I don't know I just don't really think about that too much I think I find myself like I try to be as present as I can with all my relationships and you know there is history there but yeah I think I, I try to stay in the present as much as I can when did you learn about that, staying in the present as much as you can? <laughs> well, I think it's something I've been practicing a lot more over the last couple of years. I don't know. I think something about my 29th and 30th year of life, there was something that like kind of switched on. I had a kind of a couple big time like spiritual sort of experiences and just found myself feeling, I think before all of that, I found myself feeling kind of like existentially anxious. Like I'm not where I want to be. I'm not, you know, what I want to be. I'm not who I want to be. And then kind of over the last couple of years, just realizing like you carry everything that you need. You have everything you need. And I think the more I started to believe that the more I find myself becoming and being and feel way less existentially anxious about my life. And mm -hmm. I'm just kind of, you know, I still want things and I still, you know, have dreams and goals and things that I haven't done that I want to do, but I feel much more content. And mm. I think there was a period early on after my injury where my dad was really in that headspace was like, I think he has a song. I think the line is like, now is all we get or something. He gets on a lot of like, he's a bit of a zealot. So like when he has an idea, he's like, that's it. This is the one. And <laughs> I'm that way a little bit sometimes too, but yeah, I am too. A um, so too. <laughs> sometimes I think when he was on that, I was like, oh yeah, cool. Okay, cool. Okay. Okay, Dad. <laughs> you know, like just letting him go. Um, yeah, letting him flow with the idea. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that probably stuck in my head a little bit. And, but I think specifically the the spiritual yeah, experience, the sort of mm -hmm. spiritual experiences that I had were really pretty groundbreaking for me. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. 
With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. I love how um, you can say it was a spiritual experience and really embrace that. And even when you look back, you may have had a spiritual community that didn't really stay with you, you know, that yeah. actually for you felt like betrayed you. Yeah. But it didn't get in the way of your relationship. Or maybe it did for a while. I don't know. Oh, but it, it sounds yeah, as though it, did. it didn't permanently damage your <laughs> yeah. relationship with yeah. uh, the divine. But- I think it changed it. It evolved, mm-hmm. you know. It evolved, yeah. Sure. I love your expression, existentially anxious. <laughs> Did you coin that? I just thought of it right now. <laughs> well, I love it. Gabe Roderick, you heard it here, existentially <laughs> anxious. It's really true, isn't it, about our identity and our value and who are we and where are we in this big, expansive world and... Yeah. We contract, you know, we expand, we, it's got a lot of movement to it. And then to come back to, I don't know, I just think about what you resourced when you were in that big, expansive blue Costa Rican water, you know, to come back to that sense of surrender and calm. Here I am again, yeah. divine source. <laughs> yeah. That was a another thing that was kind of tumbling through my brain during the last couple years was just this idea of surrender to the flow. And if you, when you do that, you know, it will take you, it will pick you up, but it is a choice to sort of Mm -hmm. let it take you and stop resisting it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think I've been exploring that a lot over the last couple of years. And honestly, over the last six months, it's been a challenge because I've been surrendering to a maybe a little darker flow than mm. 
prior. To really surrender, you know, it can take us all different places. Sometimes that's when we can really benefit from a guide, mm. somebody else along with us, right? So we yep. don't plummet into the depths too yep. deeply or for too long. You know, we can go explore yep. around, but not to stay in those crevices for too long. Right. Which is why I have yeah. a therapist. <laughs> yeah. I have a healing team <laughs> and I'm just a mom. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so grateful to my healers. I really am also appreciating how from the time when you were really just 15 or 16 and a couple of years out and then when you were 29 and 30, but you've made these decisions that you knew were pretty pivotal. Like when you didn't pursue school, you went with your dad you know, around the world pursuing stem cell. Um, yeah. That's a big decision for a spinal cord injured young person, yeah. you know. And it does, sadly, seem to be a, a choice. It's hard to blend the two to really do school and, you yeah. know, do rehab of whatever variety. And then to move out of your family home, you know, on your own. And then now this more recent time, of what you've chosen to do. You know, yeah. I'm just wondering when in these choices did you feel like you were in what is oftentimes referred to but might not resonate for you, I don't know, as the new normal? <laughs> or are there a number of mm. new normals? <laughs> yeah, new normal. I'm thinking about a few different periods. One, choosing to move out, choosing to drop out of school and start a band choosing to move back into the house I grew up in and live with roommates and my mom rents the house out to us. I feel a sort of like sadness and almost like a, I've been doing a lot of parts work and I have a lot of fighty parts, like parts that want to fight. And warrior parts? Warrior parts, sure. Fighter parts. Yeah, fighter parts. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think those parts are coming up now that I, when I'm thinking about new normal, because this doesn't feel normal. I don't think it ever has. And I think I've made the, these decisions because, because I don't want this to be my norm. But, you know, it's uh, sort of this paradox that I live with because, you know, I have to surrender to it. I have to accept it. But I also don't want it. So I, I think I do these things because, yeah, because I don't want this to be the norm. Honestly, it feels like I'm, it's a way for me to fight back. It's a way for me to, like, no, you don't get to control my life you know you don't get to take over and who is the you whom you're fighting back <laughs> my i think just my injury and i uh -huh. think it could also be i think i have a weird relationship with god or the idea of god i think about god a lot in terms of my injury and that like no you don't get to choose that or you know choose that for me you know 
there's a deep part of me that's always kind of ready to fight and ready to push back. But there's also a big part of me that's just like, well, here we go, <laughs> you know. Here I am. <laughs> it is new normal, but it's also not. It's, it is that sort of paradox of like, it's both and, you know. Yeah, both and. I'm thinking that with another one of those big decisions to leave school and become a musician, you adopted the name, a stage name, of Freak. Yes. That was actually a little later. That was 2018. I had a band for five years called Treading North, and we played together for about five years, and then I started Freak. You know, the, the North, of course, always represents the unknown. Oftentimes <laughs> yeah. it's seen as the dark, the darkness, yeah. the unknown, uncertainty. Yeah. yeah, how about that? Well, when did your music get dubbed Dirt Folk? And was did you come up with that? or? Yeah, that was when I started Freak. A lot of the more kind of acoustic, bluesy, stripped down stuff is kind of what I coined Dirt Folk. I have a lot of like bigger band music too, like up to, I've played with up to 11 piece band. And so I wouldn't really label that as Dirt Folk. Because that's it's more groovy and maybe kind of jazzy, bluesy, funky stuff. Yeah. So, what does dirt folk or what are the instruments that are part mm. of dirt folk? The first stuff I started writing as freak, I started writing on piano. Played the piano with a pencil in my brace, so I would pluck one note on the piano at a time to sort of arpeggiate chords and then sing over top of it. It was a kind of a big deal because I grew up playing piano for close to 13 years. Yeah, it was about 10 years post-injury that I was like, maybe I can try this again, but in a really, really different way. Yeah, I haven't really gone back to it too much. I think I wrote probably two to four songs that way. And feel pretty satisfied with what I did and have mm -hmm. kind of moved on. Maybe I'll go back to it at some point, but maybe not. But the idea behind Dirt Folk being really stripped down, very kind of dark, a little bit spooky songs that you would hear in a graveyard or a, just a dirty, dank <laughs> swamp kind of Yeah, I'm getting a haunted place. feeling right now. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of gothic or haunted, yeah. I mean, I'm really struck because when you mentioned playing the piano for 11 years before your injury and you were 15, so you've been playing the piano for a long time, and I'm familiar with the song Decompose, which you created in your childhood dining room on the piano. Yeah. And and I guess writing it there, like decompose. <laughs> so was this sort of dark, heavy, gloomy, gothic, Was has that always been with you? Yeah, I think that sort of aesthetic has. I, I think I spend a lot of time in that sort of ideological landscape of just like the darkness, the mystery. Whenever I get on this conversation, I always think of this thing my parents told me, we went to see Toy Story when I was like three years old. And mm -hmm. we came out of the movie theater and one of them asked me, what was your favorite part of the movie? I, I was just going to say, what I, was your favorite part? Yeah. I looked at them 
And my dad said I had like a grin on my face. And I said, I like Sid. <laughs> I knew I, you said a grin. I said, it's got to yeah. be Sid. Yep. Evil little Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> so it really like, it's been with me since day one. This like, I don't know what it is, this sort of attraction to the villain, the darkness, you know. The macabre. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, you're uh, comfortable in the melancholy also, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like not afraid to um, plumb those depths, Yeah, it sounds like. I mean, how about other people? What are the reactions and feedback you received to some of your songs? I mean, like one I'm thinking of, like, how are you not freaking out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of good reactions, specifically in the live setting. When I play live, I think that's when... I get a lot of like really intense compliments, like people coming up to me and just like just laying it on heavy. I think the recording, you know, when people listen to that stuff, it's a little, I still get a lot of good feedback on it, but I think my live performance tends to impact people a little bit more. It all feels pretty, really good feedback. Mm -hmm. And the intense, it sounds like the yeah. intenser the better. Yeah. You know, I've had people coming yeah. up crying and, you know, kind of the gamut. I actually think of my my visual art. My visual art is very dark, very, yeah, macabre. And I think that one is, it's really funny to me because sometimes I'll be selling prints at shows and stuff and people will come up and they'll look and they'll go, oh, wow, that's really scary. And they'll keep looking and then they'll walk away and they don't buy anything. <laughs> um, my visual art actually kind of repulses people a little bit. <laughs> but some people really like it, you know, but I think it's a taste thing, you know. What's your intention with it? The way that I think about my visual art is I think it comes out from my feelings about my body and it's actualizing my pain and my sort of body dysmorphia, my like the trauma, you know, and I think it comes out really in a really potent way that my music doesn't really hit. I'm interested in, in exploring more of that, but I think my music tends to be much more bluesy, which people are used to the blues and it's in everybody's ears. It's all over the radio, you know, so you you can find your way to my music a little bit better than you can my visual art. It's all black and white. It's all pen. It's very shadowy, demon, kind of violent, horror. Is it therapeutic? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm hearing that. Like, it, it might not be this way all the time, or it might be. Who knows? Yeah. For, you know, yeah. for the rest of your life, but it sounds really therapeutic to you. Yeah. It's an expression of, of the injury and your limbs themselves. It's an expression of the trauma, and a lot of people haven't experienced that level of trauma. And yeah. So when they see it, they're not ready for it, you know? Mm hmm. And a level of trauma that, by and large, is there to stay. It's not like something that is mending and healing and with lots of rehab. You're, I mean, it is for many spinal cord injured people, but your level of injury. 
Yeah. The darkness of your visual art, I was marveling at the real rawness and authenticity, intensity in your writings and Mm. your poems and the lyrics, and especially some of your lyrics on sexuality Mm. and this like longing quality. And I was curious why you have chosen the poetry and lyrics for that or if that might show up in your visual art. Yeah, I mean, I I think it is this like deep longing that I have. It's one of a few things that this injury has nearly completely shut me off from, at least in the way that I physically experience it, right? Like I post-injury, I can't orgasm, I can't ejaculate, I can Mm -hmm. still get erect, but I can't feel it. So that physical experience of orgasm and intense pleasure has pretty much been completely shut off from me. And it's, yeah, the only other thing I can really think of that feels similar is also like going out and walking barefoot through the forest. Like that's Mm. feels like on the same level of those two things have been almost nearly shut off. And two things you would really love. Yeah. Those are the two things that I like deeply long for. And so I, I write about them and I, yeah, I try to experience them in different ways. And a lot of the time it just comes out really dark because I have a lot of anger. I have a lot of sadness. I have a sort of deep resentment to this injury for taking those things away from me. And so when I express them, they come out in this sort of spooky, melancholy, haunted, you know, way. I'm just wondering if I might recite a couple of your lyrics. Um, Go for it. You know, one, you say, I can breathe orgasms. I can climb trees with my mind. I can hold you deeply with my eyes. I can hear every part of my body you touch. I can feel the patterns of life with every beat of my heart. Wow, I mean, looking for the lover that you can imagine. Hmm. I don't even remember where that was. Where did you find that? In that one of your songs? Here's some more of it. It says... Don't get me wrong, I'll forever starve for touch. Full body hugs, a full-blown erection followed by an electric ejaculation. Feeling so tangled up in someone else's body that you can't tell whether or not they're trying to steal your soul. I think that was from a piece I wrote on intimacy. It wasn't a song, but it was poetry. I was reading up that it was in reference to not having had the sexual experience yet and then also longing for it as a man. Yeah, I think it was post having sex, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, a very deep 
longing for that sort of intimacy. It's very moving. And it, I feel like it kind of goes against what I was saying, that it's actually really beautiful. And well, I wanted to ask you about that because your visual art being so macabre, but this is like, it sounds like there have been at least some pieces where this lover that you can imagine and still have this incredible intimacy, it's been there all along. I think that's why I say sex and the the physical pleasure has been nearly shut off. It hasn't been all the way. And I've had to find new new pathways, new ways to be, to find eroticism. I think about that word a lot, the idea of eroticism, because I can be that. I can be erotic and I may not be able to orgasm, but I change the way I experience the world. I can change the way I experience a human a body. Yeah. You know, I can see new pathways and find new ways of doing that, you know. And what we know now about the power of the brain and how it is what we can focus on even think that can create real physical sensation and arousal in the emotional arena as well as physical and what we're learning through the spinal cord injury research even with the incredible single pointed focus of the mind on parts that with some electrical stimulation are actually able to move vibrate etc it sounds like you're in some ways, you're on it just in a very, not just, but in a very artistic way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think mm-hmm. of, I think that's how I think about sex now is in a very, it's sort of an art, you know, kind of has to be now that you're creating it yourself. Most people might wish they could have a lover who was an artist. Yeah. I talk to most women, and I suspect there are a number of men who don't have to be that far different, but some of the greatest intimacy is uh, what you said you already have, yeah. right? you got a great head and creativity and big heart and a belief in things that are larger than you are. Uh, the world's your oyster. It is. <laughs> the oyster is <laughs> yeah, an aphrodisiac, is. so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just got to beat those women away. Gabe, (laughs) you know, oh, it's so cute. I'm also, I mean, you just are making me smile so much because then how you just embrace, you know, your music, like with like a cripple's dance. (laughs) I mean, I was, I began learning about, you know, this unique collaboration that you created. Can we talk about that as before we leave each other today. Tell us what a Cripple's Dance performance is like. I mean, if you just take us there. Yeah. The Little Elevator Pitch is, it's a live music, live dance production performed and created by people with spinal cord injuries and people with able bodies. And we've done two, two productions of it so far, 2018, 2019. We may or may not do more in the future. I don't know. It's such a feat to do that it may not happen again but it also may 
I don't know. Yeah, it was a big performance. We had probably close to 15 people in the whole production. There was a live band who performed throughout the show. And sometimes I would play with them, but sometimes I would be out on the floor dancing. Um, We had five dancers, including me, two able-bodied dancers, and three of us with spinal cord injuries. And yeah, it was a live performance. And we performed our choreographed dance pieces with the live band. And the shows were very much like my story. You know, the music that I wrote was very on display. And so that kind of transferred into the pieces that we choreographed. And it was a really, I mean, it was a really beautiful experience. It was really emotionally exhausting and physically exhausting because there were a few pieces where we'd get out of the chair and get on the floor and we'd be moving with each other and the able-bodied dancers. And we were very exposed in a lot of ways. We kind of laid it all out there. And literally, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is I'm crippled. I am living with a spinal cord injury. I'm limited in really profound ways, but I can use those limitations to actually sort of to find a lot of power and express and create. Because, I mean, when you think about art, that's a lot of what art is. It's about, you know, I'm going to use red today, and that's all I'm going to use. We use what we have. Um, exactly. Use what you've got. We find creative ways to use what we have. And what we have is dance and music. And so we use those things. Beautiful. Yeah, just a real symphonic kind of orgasmic, you know, experience dancing with able body and folks who are disabled. Yeah. I just can only imagine the others who can participate in that experience with you. And the, I'm just imagining like a ripple effect of, you know, heart to heart, but also when your heart is stirred and you can feel it and watch it in the body, Mm. that's something you can really carry with you and resource, you know, later. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's something that, really grateful that we did. I'm thinking about the word resource. Like it's an experience that I feel like I've resourced a lot from. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm kind of back and forth about doing it again because it was so intense. It was so deep that I think I need like, I need maybe a decade to like come down from it, you know, because I'm still like, when I think about going back and doing that, I'm just like, no way. <laughs> yeah. And you might not need to because you're still um you're still living and pulling from the resource yes. that it gave you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, we in our world, at blink of an eye, in our world of trauma and trauma healing, resourcing is one of the greatest gifts we can give to ourselves, whether it's 
you know, from a memory, just a memory, which could be in a photograph or could be in a painting or a piece of art like you're creating or a, or a piece of music or the sound of a particular choreographed piece or dancing, whatever it is that if we can really and commit it to some memory of where we feel it in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And that can also be imagined. Right. We have an incredible resource to pull upon when we're lower or not as optimistic or not as energetic. Right. Or whatever we need in a particular time of our lives to move forward. Yeah. Great way that we can all resource for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> You've given yourself 10 years of a resource. That is some yeah, kind I of mean, beautiful <laughs> treasure. <laughs> That's what it feels like, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Well, it is really, it's been just a delight talking with you. And I don't know if there's anything else that you would like to share with our listeners or anything else that you haven't expressed along our conversation or maybe any themes that are lurking around, skulking around in the recesses of your imagination that you want to share (laughs) or not. Oh, man. I don't know. Something I've been thinking about lately is I'm starting to actually believe in what I'm doing. And I... Can we we just pause on that? I want (laughs) to pause on that. That is amazing, right? (laughs) I am just getting or finally getting to a place where I can believe. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, what I'm doing. I can believe what I'm doing. Yeah. And believe in what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been doing Mm -hmm. this for 10 plus years and it's taken me this long to actually, yeah, believe in it and know that what I make and what I do can impact other people. Conceptually, I think I've known that for a long time, but, you know, there's a difference between conceptually thinking and believing and then actually like moving it through your body. I'm just thinking about people listening and, you know, specifically if they have disabilities or spinal cord injuries, like I live with this doubt in my mind that what I make and what I do isn't worthwhile or isn't won't connect with people but that when you do connect with people through what you make and what you do it is it's a resource right like it's a resource not only for yourself but for so many people so make and do and make and do and make and do and make and do for as long as you can (laughs) you know don't worry about what people think about it because People are going to think what they think. I guarantee you somebody's going to connect with it, you know. Yeah, there's some real deep relational reciprocity when you are make and do and make and do again and make and do again. And there will be some connectivity. And to believe in that. Yeah, believe in that. Well, Gabriel Roderick, it has truly been a blessing for me. Thank you so much for your your imagination and the courage to plumb the depths of this injury and how it shows up in art and many different forms for you. 
as a performer, musician, lyricist, visual artist, just so many ways, and not to mention dancer, that we uh, are inspired. I'm inspired by you, and I thank you very much. And I want to make sure people will know where to find you. They'll be in the show notes. Anything in particular you'd like to share right now or anything that's next for you? Yeah, I think the best places to find me, I'm most active on Instagram, and it's at freak, D-O-M. So freakdom, freak spelled F-R-E-A-Q-U-E-D-O-M. Like kingdom, but freakdom. <laughs> yeah. No, excuse me. I said, yeah, don't forget that little French twist on freak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm also on all streaming sites and YouTube. And I don't have a lot coming up right now, but I am gearing up to do a bunch of recording and then probably some live shows in the spring just around the Minneapolis area and then maybe going on tour next year. So, yeah. Well, if you come to Baltimore, you've got a place to stay. It's all equipped. And I promise you good hospitality. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Yeah, truly. Yeah, thank you, Gabe. As we emerge from the captivating world of Gabriel Roderick, we are reminded that often the most exceptional art rises up from the most demanding and dire circumstances. Gabriel's life, marked by a severe spinal cord injury, offers a profound lesson in resilience and the indomitable strength of the human spirit. His music weaves the fabric of his experiences into melodies that reach into the depths of our souls. It's a reminder that the challenges of life can serve as fertile ground for the blossoming of new creativity. In the realm of art, Gabriel Roderick shines as a beacon, showing us his version of creativity and manifestation of courage, and how change and adaptation is the byproduct of resilience. His story and his art serve as a poignant lesson that regardless of the obstacles life presents, The human spirit possesses the capacity to ascend to unimaginable heights. Gabe's journey is a testament to the idea that through creativity, determination, and an unwavering spirit, we can conquer even the most formidable challenges and leave an enduring impact on the world. So let us remember Gabriel's narrative and carry with us the inspiration to embrace our life's trials, whatever they are for each of us, and how we too have the capacity like Gabe to transform our setbacks into meaningful expression that makes life for others more meaningful as well. May we all have the courage to discover the fortitude to illuminate the world with our own brand of creativity. And in doing so, become beacons of change, love, and inspiration for all. Stay tuned for more incredible stories and insights on spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in future episodes in the Dear Louise series of our podcast. Together, 
We are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.